everyone, and welcome to After Alexander, Episode 3, The Chase. Last time, we left Seleucus as the newly installed satrap of Babylon and the empire under the regency of a new man called Antipater following the death of Perdiccas. Today, we get to watch it all unravel again, both for Seleucus and the Empire. First, I have a bit of a correction to make. After I'd uploaded episode 2, I realised that I hadn't really given you any dates to work with. So for reference, the conference at Triparadisus took place in 320 BCE. Alexander's been dead for two, maybe three years at this point. I'll try to make sure to add more dates in from now on to anchor the narrative a bit. Anyway. Once Antipater had made himself comfortable in the regent's office, he had to deal with the now-outlawed supporters of Perdiccas still holed up in Anatolia. Specifically, Alexander's former secretary Eumenes, leading the pro-Perdiccas band, was a problem. Accordingly, Antipater dispatched one of the successors we talked about last time, Antigonus, to deal with him. Antigonus was one of the old guard appointed by Philip II of Macedon, making him a member of Antipater's own generation. As such, this made him a relatively unknown force to the later cohorts such as Ptolemy and Seleucus, given that he'd not gone east with the young blood during the conquests, and only really appears in our empire-wide narrative roundabout now. For the first few years, Antigonus would keep it that way, hiding his cards close to his chest and not revealing what his ambitions really were. It should be noted that Antipater didn't entirely trust his generational companion, as evidenced by the fact he sent his own son Cassander along as an aide to keep a close eye on him. So, Antigonus set off to deal with Eumenes. Eumenes had been able to gather some support from the influential people around him. However, when Antigonus arrived under the authority of the regent and with an army, he presented a rather binary choice for the local powers, support Antigonus meekly or go into open rebellion against the empire. As you can imagine, this choice would have made it more difficult for people to throw their weight behind Eumenes. However, despite this, Eumenes continued to make Antigonus's life difficult, as he was a master at persuading Alexander's old soldiers to come to his side. To give you just one example of his grasp on propaganda, he held his councils of war with an empty throne in the room, implying the ghost of Alexander the Great himself was presiding over it all. However, Antigonus was talented and continually built up his forces, so that in the end Eumenes just couldn't compete. The end result of all this was that Eumenes fled south from Anatolia and towards Syria. Incidentally, it is here that we once again see a step on the path towards disintegration of everything Alexander had strove to build up. Laomedon, the satrap of Syria, had been ejected by Ptolemy, who likely then took over the region for himself. When Eumenes arrived in the area from the north, Ptolemy did nothing, neither attacking nor joining Eumenes. This is effectively a statement of his neutrality, and the fact that Ptolemy was able to do this shows that Egypt was, to all intents and purposes, independent from the rest of the empire. But back to Eumenes. With Antigonus snapping at his heels, he turned east and fled deeper into the heart of the empire. By the winter of 317 and 316 BCE, He'd arrived near Babylon and was negotiating with Python and Seleucus, the satraps in the area, for passage. He was hoping to get to the satrapy of Antigones, his ally, on the other side. 
During these negotiations, you can almost see Seleucus trying to walk the political tightrope to stay out of it as much as possible. After all, he'd slowly been building up native Babylonian support for the past few years, since 320 BCE, and wouldn't have wanted his satrapy slash state to be jeopardised by throwing his weight behind one side or the other. At the same time, he still had to use the formal language of governorship under the empire, which Ptolemy had already essentially dispelled with. Eumenes was presenting himself accordingly as the pro-royal faction of the empire, and now had the support of the new regent, Polyperchon. This is where we're going to have to take a break and talk about what's been going on within the higher echelons of power, as there's been quite some manoeuvring going on while we've been focusing on politics at the level of the satraps. With the satrapies increasingly going their separate ways, the story of the regency and the kingship is becoming ever more detached from the new political reality, as they essentially become shadow figures pretending to rule in the background. Antipater had died back in 319 BCE, which you would think meant his son Cassander, or at least one of his sons, took over, but you'd be wrong. Instead, he appointed a man named Polyperchon as his successor. Cassander, of course, wouldn't take this lying down, which will lead to the Second War of the Diadochoi at around about this same time. None of the sources that I've been using really mention it as such explicitly, so I'm largely just going to cover events as they occur without compartmentalising it into separate wars, in the manner that they do. There will eventually be consequences rippling out from this, but I'm going to keep the narrative flowing rather than breaking it up any further. Suffice to say, Cassandra's going to have a big impact later on. So anyway, that's the jockeying for the Regency. At the royal level, however, there's been a far more substantial shift, which is where we have to go back to Alexander's mother, the Queen Dowager Olympias. As we discussed in episode 0, Olympias was the wife of Philip II and the mother of Alexander III and Cleopatra, Alexander's only full sister. Her stepson, Philip III, and her grandson, Alexander IV, were now the ones who were ruling together, which she seems to have resented. After Polyperchon became regent in 319 BCE, Olympias allied herself with both the new regent and Eumenes, and ordered the murder of both Philip III and his bride Sainane. This means that Alexander IV, her grandson, became sole king after 317 BCE, and just six years old, which probably suited his grandmother down to the ground. Seleucus tried to toe the middle line on the issue in order to assert his neutrality, he claimed to be a supporter of the royal family like Eumenes was, but that he couldn't support him given that he had been legally made an outlaw at Triparadasus a few years earlier. Eventually, his stalling must have meant Eumenes just ran out of patience. After all, although he had the support of the new regent, he could feel the breath of the dragon that was Antigonus down his back as the old general gave chase. Eventually, in the spring of 316 BCE, he likely felt that he couldn't wait anymore and invaded. This isn't to say that Seleucus didn't try to stop him, because he did, quite strenuously in fact, although he was ultimately unsuccessful. In part 2, we'll see how Seleucus dealt with the Eumenes Antigonus situation that had now crashed onto his doorstep. That's part 2, after the music. See you then. Eumenes' army, when it did get into the satrapy, was unable to get over the river Tigris, at least initially. 
As Eumenes gathered ships together for a crossing, Seleucus arrived on board of one of two triremes which Alexander had once been recruiting as part of his planned expedition to sail around Arabia. Seleucus tried to convince factions within Eumenes' army to depose him, but was unsuccessful. Eventually, he flooded Eumenes' camp by breaking a canal open, but in doing this, he left the crossing unguarded and, although there was some fighting, Seleucus was helpless in terms of stopping him marching onwards towards the east. Once Eumenes arrived in the east, he rallied the satraps to his cause, most likely fueled by their mutual dislike of Seleucus's neighbour Python, rather than the letters he carried from Polyperchon. Eumenes felt he was in a much stronger position now, having secured money from Antigone's satrapy and having looted Babylonia during his crossing. However, his actions had now pushed both Seleucus and Python into the waiting arms of Antigonus. Seleucus even contributed some troops to Antigonus's army when they arrived. After all, he could cite his appointment by Antipater and say he was supporting the legitimately appointed commander in the form of Antigonus, and most certainly not wreaking his own revenge, that would be silly. Eumenes was eventually defeated and executed. However, it was not this that eventually caused the sensation, but Antigonus's behaviour after the fact. While chasing Eumenes, he had claimed to be general over Asia, as he had been appointed in this role by Antipater. People would have expected that this would fade away once he dealt with Eumenes, but it was clear Antigonus had no intention of doing this or allowing this to happen. He seems, in fact, to have used it as a base to argue for his own supreme level of control, and might by now have adjusted his sights to include the whole empire in his future ambition. He also began to butt heads with Python, who was eventually accused of plotting against him and was beheaded after a show trial. Antigonus began accumulating wealth and removing satraps from their position, heading slowly back west again on a route which notably included Babylon and Susa as major stops. Seleucus would no doubt have been nervous, given that his policy of cautiously supporting Antigonus, however right it may have been in the context of the Eumenes campaign, had left him facing a man who deposed satraps at will and, in short, had imperial ambitions. When Antigonus arrived, he was greeted with supplies and a banquet, but the atmosphere was cool. Seleucus and Antigonus were both suspicious of one another, but Seleucus couldn't be seen to openly defy Antigonus, especially since he had a huge army right on Seleucus' doorstep. So, for a while at least, the atmosphere was cordial. It all blew up again when Seleucus punished one of his governors in the presence of Antigonus. This was all fine and good under the jurisdiction of Satrap, but Antigonus maintained he should have been consulted, directly placing his power above that of Seleucus. To drive this point home, he demanded to see Seleucus' accounts for the satrapy, now, you can well imagine that any Antigonus-appointed auditor who was looking for a discrepancy in the records was going to find it, meaning that handing over these records would have presented Antigonus with a stick of political dynamite to throw back in Seleucus's face. The end result was a public argument lasting for several days. Seleucus couldn't easily be deposed, as he maintained he had the undeniable right to rule Babylon, as he'd been appointed at Triparadesus, that Antigonus had no right to exercise authority over him. Nor could Antigonus publicly kill him as he had Python. However, as the argument wore on, Seleucus came to realise Antigonus didn't necessarily need to publicly do away with him. There were plenty of armed thugs subordinate to him who could easily do the job. Seleucus therefore decided to flee Babylon, to the great vexation of Antigonus. 
After all, with Seleucus gone, what was to stop public accusations beginning to wing Antigonus's way? A company of men was sent to capture him, but with the help of the satrap of Mesopotamia, Seleucus was able to escape. It's likely, although not specifically mentioned, that his wife Apama and his children were also with him when he fled, given that Seleucus could easily have foreseen what the alternative would be for them, back in Babylon with an angry Antigonus on the loose, with a real hatred against Seleucus right now. So, where to go? There were really only two options, north to Macedonia, now controlled by Cassander, or south to Egypt. Going to Cassander would have meant crossing through Antigonus's territory, which stretched west all the way to the Aegean Sea. Antigonus's men would not all be as sympathetic as the Mesopotamia governor, after all, so that was unsuitable. In the end, he therefore turned south towards Ptolemy. this time, as Seleucus flees despondently to Egypt. The mention of Seleucus's children reminds me we haven't really talked about the next generation of Seleucid royals yet. As there are still family relationships to develop in the future, I didn't think now would be the best time to go into it in any great detail, so I'm probably going to leave it either for the moment when Seleucus has himself crowned a king, or when he eventually dies, but feel free to let me know what you think the best moment to discuss the next generation would be. So, that's Seleucus' conflict with Antigonus wrapped up. They worked together for a bit back in the days when Antipater had just taken charge, but like all good things, it didn't last. It's worth noting in all of this that Antigonus was not remotely interested in the, east, in the eastern satraps, largely because none of them had any real power, and could thus effectively be removed from the political equation. A significant factor in the reduction of the east is that some satraps have been ejected in the face of a phenomenon the world hadn't seen before at this point, a largely united India. Next time, I'm going to take a break from our main narrative and swivel east to India, where a man called Chandragupta Maurya began getting some big ideas after Alexander left. We'll also talk a bit about the political geography before the unification, which I sadly ignored somewhat for reasons of time in episode zero. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at afteralexpod at gmail.com for any questions or comments. Thank you for listening and, until next time, have a great week.